Good morning, and welcome to the New York Times Company's third quarter 2020 earnings conference call. All participants will be in listen-only mode. Should you need assistance, please stick to a conference specialist by pressing the star key followed by zero. After today's presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To ask a question, you may press star then one on your telephone keypad. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. Please note this event is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to Harlan Toplitsky, Vice President, Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thank you and welcome to the New York Times Company's third quarter 2020 earnings conference call. On the call today, we have Meredith Copet-Levian, President and Chief Executive Officer, and Roland Caputo, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer. Before we begin, I would like to remind you that management will make forward-looking statements during the course of this call, and our actual results could differ materially. Some of the risks and uncertainties that could impact our business are included in our 2019 10-K, as updated in subsequent quarterly reports on Form 10-Q. In addition, our presentation will include non-GAAP financial measures, and we have provided reconciliations to the most comparable GAAP measures in our earnings press release, which is available on our website at investors.nytco.com. With that, I will turn the call over to Meredith Copet-Levian. Thank you, Harlan, and good morning, everyone. As I said when I was named CEO in July, it's the honor of a lifetime to lead the New York Times Company and to support the work of our extraordinary newsroom. Let me start by thanking our shareholders and the investor community for their confidence as we continue to evolve from a legacy print newspaper business into a growing subscription-first digital enterprise. I assumed my new role in the same quarter that our digital-only subscription revenue overtook print subscription revenue for the first time. Digital subscriptions are now not just the company's fastest growing and most important revenue stream, but also well on the way to becoming our largest. That's a milestone many years in the making and a testament to the enduring nature of our strategy. Since this is the first conversation I'm leading with you, I'm going to take a few minutes to reiterate our strategy and to share my view of our long-term opportunity. I'll also try and put that all in the context of this historic news moment. Now, you've heard us talk for some time about an addressable market of 100 million curious people worldwide who are likely to pay for the type of English-language journalism The Times produces. We increasingly believe the market is at least that large. There are nearly a billion people around the world who read news digitally and more than 80 million who pay for news today. It's easy to assume that more will do so in the future as people get more comfortable paying for digital subscriptions generally and as the supply of advertising-first alternatives continues to face pressure. So we're confident that the market is there and also in our ability to penetrate a large portion of it. Our model creates a virtuous cycle, a large newsroom made up of the world's best journalists, a widely recognized and trusted brand, and a differentiated digital product enable us to attract and retain more subscribers. The larger our subscriber base becomes, the more we can invest in our journalism and standalone products, and the more we can spread our fixed costs across a wider base of users. That means strong unit economics that improve as we scale with further contributions from advertising, licensing, and affiliate fees. Now, given that we're in the midst of a historic and thus far inconclusive election, I want to talk for a few minutes about our journalism and how its differential value fuels our strategy. Let me first say how proud I am of our newsroom and of the manner in which they're covering this election. They've reported deeply on the candidates, chronicled the key issues facing the country, illuminated the views and experiences of voters, and they're tracking the race itself. If you spent the last few days immersed in our app, you're not alone. Yesterday, our coverage brought 120 million readers to the Times, and more than 75 million came the day before. And they're coming not just to read, but also to experience live coverage in text, 
multimedia interactive graphics and audio. At the same time that we have reporters covering the election on the ground across the country, we've deployed a vast number of journalists to also report on the still surging pandemic. That effort continues to yield one of the most comprehensive data sets available to understand the virus's spread, and in particular, its exacerbation of underlying inequalities. And while much of the world's attention remains focused on politics and the pandemic, the Times has worked to keep other important issues in the public consciousness, from hunger in America, which made up the entirety of a recent issue of our Sunday magazine, to the ongoing conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. This journalistic range plays an important role in our business, which brings me to one of the biggest questions I hear from many of you. What do we believe happens to the business if or when the news cycle changes? First, let me say it's hard to imagine that we're entering a quieter period for news anytime soon, nor do we expect a change of pace in the fundamental issues that demand understanding, from technology reshaping our lives to racial and wealth inequality to the rise of China and the effects of climate change. People will continue to turn to the times for understanding when things feel less certain. We're also not reliant on any single story or topic to drive our growth. In fact, the breadth of our core news report is both a differentiator and a driver of our business. Our app this week offered both the best real-time view of the election and the virus, and also a guide for how best to distract oneself from both. Our user data tells us that each additional topic that someone engages with increases their likelihood of subscribing by 50%. And while politics is an important topic for our readers, around 80% go beyond politics to read other subjects each week. We've also begun to prove that the Times has a bigger role to play in people's lives Games and cooking together have nearly 1.4 million subscriptions, and we'll continue to invest significantly in those products and other efforts like Wirecutter and Audio. And it's also worth noting that over time, the model is becoming more resilient to big swings in the news cycle. We saw that after the 2016 election, and we see it after other big news events. Net subscription additions go up significantly, and after they crest, they settle in at a higher point than before, in part because with each passing quarter and year, we get steadily better at executing. With that said, a lot of hard work remains in order to make the product and our underlying tech platforms match our ambitions, and at least some of that will require additional investment. This has been an extraordinary year so far for net subscription additions. We ended the third quarter with approximately 6.9 million total subscriptions, and we crossed the 7 million mark already in the month of October, which means we've added more than 2 million digital subscriptions in the last year. Although we have a lot of confidence in our ability to continue to grow, 2020 is an unprecedented year, and we don't expect to repeat its results. That said, we are well on our way to surpassing the 10 million goal we had initially targeted to hit by 2025. Turning to advertising, our digital results while down were slightly better than we expected. As we've told you for the last year or so, we've been steadily tilting the business back to the unique value of our media. Our first party audience data used in privacy forward ways has enabled pockets of growth in direct sold media. And it's also now the foundation of a new thought leadership platform called Pivotal, which our ad team launched during the quarter to help marketers consider their creative and brand strategies in the context of broad consumer insights. Audio advertising has also been an area of continued resilience driven by the daily. And in the third quarter, we entered into a multi-year augmented reality collaboration with Facebook and we also advanced our work with Verizon on 5G with the launch of our first 5G franchise from here. As we said in previous quarters, the advertising business continues to be important to the company's economics, but we do not expect it to be a significant driver of growth 
in the near term. Before I hand it off to Roland, I want to take a moment to thank my Times colleagues working across news and business. I've told you what makes us confident in our strategy, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say that our ability to execute that strategy lies in the talent, passion, and commitment of the 4,600-plus Times people who've been working tirelessly in unprecedented circumstances. I couldn't be prouder of how they've shown up for the mission, for our business, and for one another in this intense year. Over to you, Roland. Thank you, Meredith, and good morning. As Meredith said, we remain pleased with the progress we are making as we continue to execute against our strategy, and Q3 was yet another strong quarter for the company. Adjusted diluted earnings per share was $0.22 cents in the quarter, $0.10 cents higher than the prior year. We reported adjusted operating profit of approximately $57 million, which is approximately $13 million higher than the same period in 2019. We added 275,000 net new subscriptions to our core digital news product and 118,000 net new subscriptions to our standalone digital products for a total of 393,000 net new digital-only subscriptions. Each of these figures represents the highest third quarter net ad numbers ever. Those net ads brought us to over 6 million digital-only subscriptions at the end of the quarter, including 775,000 games subscriptions and nearly 600,000 cooking subscriptions. We made two significant changes to our model from the prior two quarters. We restored the paywall to the vast majority of the site, leaving only the most critical coronavirus coverage outside of it, and we returned to a normal promotional cadence of $2 per week during non-sale periods and $1 per week when on sale. Total subscription revenues increased approximately 12.5% in the quarter, with digital-only subscription revenue growing 34% to $155 million, making Q3 the first full quarter that digital-only subscription revenue exceeded print subscription revenue. The acceleration in the rate of sequential quarterly digital subscription revenue growth from 30% in the second quarter to 34% in the third quarter is largely a result of three factors. First, the number of new subscriptions we added in the past year. Second, ongoing strength in retention of the dollar-per-week promotional subscriptions who have graduated to higher prices. And finally, the positive impact from our first-ever digital subscription price increase, which began late in the first quarter. Digital news subscription ARPU for the quarter declined approximately 11% compared with the prior year and approximately 3% compared to the prior quarter, largely consistent with the quarterly rates of decline we've reported for the last year. And newly acquired subscriptions, mostly on the dollar per week promotions domestically and at deeper promotional rates in many areas outside of the U.S., continue to more than offset the benefits from both subscriptions graduating from their introductory promotion as well as from price increases on our more tenured full-price subscriptions. ARPU related solely to domestic new subscriptions declined close to 9% versus the prior year and 3% versus the prior quarter. Our digital pricing strategy is yielding strong results, and we expect this to continue over time. This strategy utilizes the dollar-per-week year-long introductory price point to stimulate demand and increase conversion among more casual readers whose willingness to pay is initially lower. At the conclusion of the promotional period, these subscribers move to one of two higher price points, either full price or in cases where data suggests their willingness to pay remains lower, a midpoint increase before moving to a full price at the end of the second year. As we've said in the past, the dollar-per-week subscriptions continue to retain at nearly the identical rates as our historical 50% off promotion, now more than 25 months after introduction. Our digital pricing strategy also includes a price increase for our most tenured subscriptions. In September, we resumed rolling out this price increase on our most engaged and tenured subscribers, who garner the most value from the product and whose willingness to pay is highest. Churn on the initial 690,000 long-tenured subscriptions who received a rate increase earlier this year has been significantly lower than we expected and has generated more than $11 million in incremental revenue for the company through the third quarter, almost all of which falls directly to the bottom line. 
Given the price increase on our 10-year digital subscriptions and the impact from subscriptions graduating from discounted promotions, we should begin to see a slight moderation in the rate of ARPU decline in the fourth quarter. As we look forward, we expect our digital pricing strategy to provide a tailwind to ARPU throughout 2021 as approximately 1.6 million digital news subscriptions graduate from the dollar-a-week promotional discount. Additionally, we expect approximately 650,000 newly tenured subscriptions will see a price increase. On the print subscription side, revenues were down nearly 4%, largely due to a decline in single copy and international bulk sales. Revenue from domestic home delivery print subscriptions grew 2.5% in the quarter as a home delivery price increase implemented early in the year more than offset year-over-year subscription declines. Total daily circulation declined 16% in the quarter compared with the prior year, while Sunday circulation declined 6.2%. The widespread business closures, increased remote working, and reductions in travel as a result of the pandemic contributed approximately seven percentage points to the daily copy decline and two percentage points to Sunday. Total advertising revenues declined approximately 30% in the quarter as both digital and print were severely impacted by lower marketer demand during the pandemic. Digital advertising declined approximately 13% in the quarter compared with the prior year. This result is somewhat better than the guidance we gave on our second quarter earnings call, largely as a result of higher levels of spending from our large deals with Verizon, Facebook, and MasterCard. Print advertising declined approximately 47%, with luxury, entertainment, media, and home furnishing categories hit hardest. Other revenues declined approximately 2% compared with the prior year to $47 million, primarily as a result of fewer television episodes as well as lower revenues from commercial printing and live events. These declines were partially offset by licensing revenue related to Facebook news and an increase in affiliate revenue, referral revenue from Wirecutter. Adjusted operating costs decreased nearly 4% in the quarter. Cost of revenue also decreased approximately 4% as lower print production and distribution costs and advertiser servicing costs more than offset higher digital content delivery and journalism costs. Sales and marketing costs decreased approximately 21%, largely driven by lower media spend and advertising sales costs. Please note that we do not view third quarter marketing expense as representative of future spend given the special circumstances under which we were operating in the quarter. In fact, we've already begun restoring marketing spend to more normalized levels as we entered the fourth quarter. Product development costs increased by approximately 28%, largely due to growth in the number of engineers employed. We plan to continue adding to headcount in this area over the next 12 to 18 months, as we expect to continue to lean into our investments here and in our journalism to drive further growth. Our effective tax rate for the third quarter was 17.8%, which includes a tax benefit from stock price appreciation on stock-based awards that settled in the quarter. On a going forward basis, we continue to expect our tax rate to be approximately 26% on every dollar of marginal income we record, with significant variability around the quarterly effective rate. Moving to the balance sheet, our cash and marketable securities balance ended the quarter at $800 million, an increase of $43 million compared with the second quarter. The company remains debt-free with a $250 million revolving line of credit available. Consistently conservative approach we have taken in managing our balance sheet in tandem with the continued strong results produced by our subscription-first business provides the financial flexibility and confidence to continue pursuing our growth strategy even as we manage through the economic fallout of the COVID-19 crisis. Subsequent to the quarter close, as part of our continued effort to reduce the size and volatility of our pension obligations, we entered into a transaction with an insurance company to transfer a portion of our future benefit obligations and annuity administration, allowing us to reduce our overall qualified pension plan obligations by $235 million. With this transaction, which was funded from plan assets, we expect to record a non-cash pension settlement charge of approximately 80 to $85 million in the fourth quarter. Let me conclude with our outlook for the fourth quarter of 2020, which is based on our current knowledge and assumptions and could be impacted by the evolving effects of the pandemic. 
total subscription revenues are expected to increase approximately 14% compared with the fourth quarter of 2019, with digital-only subscription revenue expected to increase approximately 35%. Overall advertising revenues are expected to decrease approximately 30% compared with the fourth quarter of 2019, and digital advertising revenues are expected to decrease in the mid-teens. Other revenues are expected to decrease approximately 15% as a result of fewer television episodes and lower revenues from live events. Both operating costs and adjusted operating costs are expected to be flat or decline in the low single digits compared with the fourth quarter of 2019 as we carefully manage non-essential spending while continuing to invest in the drivers of digital subscription growth. And with that, we'd be happy to open it up for questions. We will now begin the question and answer session. To ask a question, you may press star then one on your touchtone phone. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing the keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. The first question today comes from Thomas Yet of Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Hi, thanks and good morning. Uh, Meredith, you talked about in your prepared remarks the greater resilience of your subscriber base to slower news cycles. Obviously, the news cycle is out of your control. What do you think are the key drivers heading into 2021, either in terms of more content or top of funnel or registered user conversion that could deliver the next leg of subscriber growth going forward? Yeah, thank, good morning, Thomas, and, and thanks. That's a, a good question. Um, I'll, I'll say a couple of things about that. Um, the, fir the first one, something we've, we've said before, is, um, you know, with every passing um, month and quarter, we're adding more registered users. So the, the pool of people um, who we can then um, essentially engage and get to subscribe is growing. So I'd say that's, that's a really big driver, and you should assume that the strong news cycle that we've essentially experienced all year means we're adding a lot of registered users. Um, and, you know, once they register, they're a lot more addressable to us. We, we have more opportunities to, to engage them directly and, and get them to the point of conversion. I'll, I'll, I'll say a couple more words about um, some of the things I said in my prepared remarks. We, we know that subscribers who experience the time breadth are much more likely um, to pay and stay. And so we, you know, we've got plenty of work underway to get people exposed to more breadth, and we, we think that plays a, a really big role in the model. And then I'll say we've gotten much better at, and with still sort of room ahead of us, at getting people to hit the Reggie wall and hit the paywall. Um, so, you know, we used to have a, a sort of blunt instrument meter applied in the same way everywhere, and now we run the meter in a much more customized way where we're, we're able to account for the way someone comes to the site and, you know, based, based on those signals, based on signals of, of how they engage at the outset, we, we can do a better job of customizing when do we actually ask them to pay. Some people may need, you know, coming from one channel or another, you may need to see more stories than, than someone else. So all of those things give us real, real confidence in, in the model going forward. Thanks. Uh, that's helpful. And then maybe another one for me. As your subscriber base has grown over the past year, could you talk a little bit about how the demographic audience has evolved on the Corn News product in the U.S.? And there have been some reports about competitor efforts to kind of broaden out their younger – to get to a younger audience, and we'll love to hear some color on what success you've been able to achieve on that front. Yeah, I would say all year long we've been saying a version of the same thing, which probably goes back to, um, you know, high news periods um, in, over the last several years. Um, the audience um, tends to be younger that we're bringing in than, than you know, prior cohorts of, of starts. And this particular quarter um, we, we had a, you know, a higher number of people under 40. Um, so as we – you know, as we add a lot of net ads in a quarter and as we um, see these these spikes 
in the news, we're just, you know, reaching to the outer edges of our, our propensity um, cycle. And we're, we're you know, we've, we've got a, a number of reasons for that. Um, it, the daily has become a very significant way that people engage with the times. And the daily's audience, um, I think, has, has a vast majority under um, certainly under 50 and many, many, many people under 40. So that tends to bring in a younger audience of people who now have an affinity for the New York Times. So I'd say youth um, is, is, is probably um, the biggest change we're seeing in, in the past quarter, given the significance of the domestic stories, obviously the election, also the, the effects of the pandemic domestically. Um, we also... Um, had a, a disproportionate number um, of starts coming from the United States versus versus internationally. Great. Thank you so much. The next question is from John Belton of Evercore ISI. Please go ahead. Hi. Thank you. I'll stay on the topic of subscribers. Um, so, I think, Meredith, you said in your remarks that historically the pattern you've seen is after big periods of subscriber growth, you've been able to settle at higher rates of net, net additions uh, in the future. Is this – so if, if I take that comment, do you think it, it news cycle aside, could you add more subscribers in, say, 2021 than you added in 2019? Um, and then I have a follow-up. So, so I, I also – said in my prepared remarks that, um, you know, I think in many ways 2020 is an outlier year. Um, so I don't think you should expect us to um, to, to get um, to the same place we're, we're getting in 2020, given the extraordinary nature of the news cycle. That said, we are very optimistic that we, we can continue to, to grow the model in, in subs, and I'll, I'll, um, I'll go back to the answer that I gave Thomas in, a minute ago, um, which is, you know, with every passing day, week, month, we, we are adding many, many more registered users, and those registered users are a new pool from which um, we, we can drive subscription, and registered users convert at a substantially higher rate than anonymous users. So that's a, you know, that, that's a big part of why our expectation is, even if and as the news cycle changes, an audience comes down to some degree. You've got a pool of people right there um, who are, are easier to convert than anonymous users. So I think you should expect to see real growth, um, but I think the, the, this particular news cycle is an extraordinary one, and I don't think um, it will repeat exactly as it did this year. And I guess the, the follow-up would be, what about this news cycle, or what about the subscribers you've added over the last several months makes it different. Is, is there anything in terms of engagement or churn characteristics that you're seeing um, on yeah. these recent cohorts that's different than before? Yeah, the, the, those are both both good questions. Let me let me actually address um, address churn in that because I think that is you know as the base gets larger, that's even even more important. Um, Roland and I have both said over the last few years that churn um, has been a great story and one we probably haven't said enough. Um, even as we are scaling um, the base of subscribers, we've been able to hold churn, you know, within within a, um, a sort of limited range, but we, we've been able to, to keep churn stable, which I think is a, a very big achievement. And we're able to do that because with every passing quarter, we get better at two things, the sort of mechanical aspects of churn. How do you keep people through the step-up moments? How do you actually deal with the, like, very straightforward commercial parts of it? But, but far more importantly, we're just able to engage them better, right? So we're, you know, getting people to use the product, getting people to form a daily habit with the product. We, we, we get better and better at that as we go. And then it's worth saying, because I think this is, is also um, in your question, it's worth saying that the cohorts of people who come in around particularly big news events tend to retain even better 
um, at least as well, if not even better. So, for example, we tracked really closely the original surge cohort around the 2016 election, early 2017. Um, that was an extraordinarily high retaining cohort. And we're now, what, seven and a half months into um, the global pandemic driving the news cycle, and that cohort is also retaining at a really high level. So we're optimistic that you come in, um, come in in the peak news event, and that you know has that that has a relationship to the affinity you then have for the brand. And we're also optimistic about our technical ability to get better and better at engaging people. Gotcha. That's helpful. Thanks. I, I also want to just mention, I loved following the Upshots needle the other night. That was uh, quite a good tool. <laughs> Great. Oh, happy to happy to um, hear you say that. And props to Nate Cohen and the whole team um, who have really worked tirelessly um, on all of that. Thank you. Thanks. The next question comes from Alexia Quadrani of JP Morgan. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you so much. I um, just wanted to follow up, I think, on a comment you made in, in your opening remarks about, you know, pulling back a bit on the dollar a week, meaning having more of a mix of the dollar a week or the $2 a week. Um, one, did I hear that correctly? And if so, you know, what, what is your thought process behind um, maybe becoming a little less promotional, if, if that's what I'm leading into? Um, during this period, and then I follow up. Yeah. Good morning, Alexia. Um, on on a dollar a week, I think um, Roland mentioned that um, in the quarter we did go back to our dollar a week only on sale periods. Um, I'll, I'll, what I'll say is, you know, that's an instrument that's really working for us, and particularly the, the promotional pricing, and particularly in very big news moments. Um, we think it helps us reach to the outer edges of our propensity circle. And I, you know, I got asked the question earlier about how the demo has changed. We're reaching more and more younger people, and I think that promotional price plays a role in it. It's also worth saying, um, and, and Roland said this in his prepared remarks, we are getting more confident with each passing quarter about our ability to set people up effectively. And so, um, you know, as as we do that, our our algorithms are getting better on how to step up our um, our mechanics of when we ask and how we we sort of monitor engagement and when we do in in, in when we we make the ask. All of that is improving. So what I would say is we're going to continue to use the promotional price where we see an opportunity to really scale the base in a moment of of intensity in the news cycle or otherwise and um and we're we're confident that we can we can step those folks up as we go hey um alexia i just want to maybe add a little bit of detail here um so what you may recall is that in q2 um we had open access um because of because of the coronavirus and when we did that, we also, um, as a little bit of a counter to that, we remained on sale all days of the quarter. That is very atypical for us. We typically have a cadence where we're on sale at certain points and we're not on sale um, at other points. And what my point is is that we've gone back to our normal cadence. So, so Q2 was an outlier in terms of, of having it always on. Um, prior to Q2, we did not, and we've just gone back to our normal cadence. That's very helpful. And then just my second question is on um, the margin expansion, you know, further out in 2021 or whenever we start seeing it really hit. I'm curious if you can elaborate really on the, the thought of, of how you see that being driven. Is it, you know, really largely reduction in this heightened investment spending you guys have been um, in the middle of for a few years, or, or do we expect to see some natural sort of leverage in the business that I know you guys have talked about for a while? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that, and, and Roland can add as, as he sees fit. I would say within our core news product, we're reaching a, a scale where we're starting to see operating leverage and improvement. Um, I will caution you that we still have a, a print product in, in decline, and I'll say 
um, we don't rule out investing into this, you know, very significant opportunity in front of us. Um, you know, it's a kind of once-in-a-generation opportunity, and, and um, we have a lot of ambition around what we want to accomplish. So we, we don't rule out further investment, but we, we are um, reaching a scale in the core news product where we're starting to see it improve. Thank you. The next question is from Doug Arthur of Huber Research Partners. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Um, just wanted to sort of explore the, um, you know, sequential change in digital news ads. I mean, typically the third quarter is a seasonal, uh, you know, uptick for you. You get back to college uh, contracts kicking in. I, I think there's probably people going away. Uh, you know, for the summer and, 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 and adding digital subs while they're away. Um, so, I mean, obviously you front ran a lot of strength in Q1 and Q2. Um, was, was there anything unusual about this third quarter that, you know, kind of caused a drop off in, in ads this quarter? Hi there. Um, I, I think the unusual um, thing to, to consider or the outlier is, is really Q1 and Q2, um, and and I would say Q3 represents a step function increase over last year and every other every other Q3. Um, and if you if you annualize the the number from this past quarter, that that's a, a pretty decent number and reflects the kind of step function improvement in the business um, that I'm that I'm I highlighted in in my prepared remarks and in answer to some of these questions. And I'll just like the the sort of coronavirus story at its peak. Um, which was mostly in the end of the first quarter and then throughout the second quarter, um, I, I would consider that an outlier even to a news cycle that we think will continue to be strong. Um, and, and on the digital advertising, you were guiding down 20%. You came down, uh, you were down 12.6 or so, um, so better. Um, are you seeing, and obviously you cited some big projects you did, are you seeing a little bit of, uh, of light at the end of the tunnel there in terms of going into 2021? I'll say that there, I, I touched each of these um, briefly in my prepared remarks, but there are three things that are, are working um, well in advertising and proving to be um, quite, quite resilient. One is the first-party data strategy, so essentially, you know, our selling our high-margin media with um, a superior ability for marketers to target audiences in, in privacy-forward ways using our first-party data. There seems to be real demand for that. That is a, a um, an area that we'll continue to focus on, and and I think over time um, will be a really important driver of the ad business, and 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 gave us some resilience within you know certain categories and sort of pockets um, in in the the third quarter. Um, we're still doing big partnerships, so I talked about two that um, one a new one with Facebook that launched in the quarter, and then an expansion of the Verizon partnership um, so that will continue to be a driver and then I mentioned audio and what I would say on audio is that's a place where we think there's going to be real demand um, at high CPM for some time to come and our product set is expanding and it's expanding because the daily keeps expanding the audience keeps growing um, and that you know it's a media product as the audience grows there's more high CPM advertising to sell and obviously we acquired serial productions and um, have a, a multi-year partnership now to with the rights to this American life and and that's obviously coming online next year and then a number of other shows launching. So I, I think audio will be something to watch in our ad business for some time to come. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. The next question comes from Wasily Karasayev of Cannonball Research. Please go ahead. 
Thank you, Meredith. I wanted to go back to um, uh, a question that you were answering um, a little bit uh, um, a little earlier today about the level of net ads. Do you think 2019 level of net ads is sustainable or reachable for you? So that's number one. And number two, um, I think you touched on it, but uh, I wonder if you could talk a little more details. Do you think the fact that the schools are not open is a big headwind uh, in Q3 for net ads? So on the on the first question, um, let me. I, I I think you're essentially um, my the shortest answer I can give you. You know, we don't give forward-looking guidance, but you know, the um, I, I've already suggested that when when there's a peak moment in net ads, we settle in at at a higher place than where we come off, but we settle in at a higher place than before. Um, and I've, I've, you know, shared in my prepared remarks all the reasons we continue to feel optimistic that we can grow net ads if you essentially assume 2020 has been an outlier. Um, and on your second question, I think you're asking um, – say that one more time, just did schools closing? Yeah, the, the fact that, um, you know, the, it's an unusual quarter in terms of going back to school, schools, colleges, all that kind of stuff. Do you think that was a headwind for net ads in Q3 yeah. for you? I, I don't. I don't think so. Um, I, do, I don't think so. Um, and again, I'll, I gave this answer before, but you know, Q3 annualized. We'd be very happy with that result, and it's a step function increase over over every other Q3 that we've had. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. The next question is from Craig Huber of Huber Research Partners. Please go ahead. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, Meredith, maybe you could first just talk a little bit further about the, the size of the newsroom, if you could size that for me, please. I assume it hasn't changed much this year, but maybe just talk a little bit about further. Are you, are you planning on investing, meaning ad headcount, in a fairly material way next year? What, what's the game plan there, please? So I would say, um, and Roland and I have said this for some time, we're going to continue to invest in the newsroom. Um, you know, that is central. The, the differential value of the journalism is central to the strategy. So we will continue um, to, to invest there. We've also said in the past that um, that investment, um, so we still grow the newsroom, but that investment does not um, have to scale with with um, with the opportunity. So um, you know, we 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 can add journalists um, and add subscribers at a higher rate, right? Um, the other thing I would say is um, the you know nothing drives the model more than the things that I cited in my prepared remarks, which are the range of our journalism, the breadth. Of, of the report um, and, and the differential value we're able to produce with it. So you should assume we'll keep investing, but again, not at the same scale that we expect to get results from the model. And then also, can you size for us, you kept talking about in a good way, the number of registered users, you're very happy with that number. What, how many millions is that right now, the registered users? We, are, we, we have not and are not prepared to share that number publicly. What I can tell you is we are adding millions of registered users every quarter, and registered users convert at a higher rate, substantially higher rate than anonymous users. And what, what's remarkable about it, um, maybe it shouldn't be remarkable, but it's, it's, it's been satisfying to see that um, that's not just an in-the-moment opportunity, um, you know, two, three, five months after they register, they are still more likely to convert than an anonymous user. And my final question, maybe if you could just touch on um, your podcast product, The Daily, uh, maybe size that force number of users and what sort of the game plan going forward. And also how helpful is that product to helping to drive folks to sign up for your news only product? Yeah, great, great question. I would say, the daily is very helpful to a number of things. It's helpful to driving affinity um, to the brand. Um, we, it's, you know, harder to track directly how it drops people into the, the um, core news 
subscription funnel, but um, we, we have every reason to believe it does, given how our results have improved with, you know, in the, in the four years now that, that we've had the daily. We also know that the ads that we run on the daily, our own um, journalists talking about the work that they do are quite performative. Um, so even just, you know, the, the daily, the, the program drives affinity, the ads within it, um, drive do do um, drop people in the the best from as best as we can tell do drop people into the funnel and then I would say you know it remains and I, I said this in my prepared remarks a very strong ad business and we think it'll continue to to be a growing ad business I think you asked me about where audiences I may get a correction on this from Roland but I think we're close to four million. Um, 4 million users a day, um, so huge audience. And, and the thing that's remarkable to me about the daily's audience is that's like almost twice as large as, as the paper was at its peak, and it's only four years old, and it's got an audience with, you know, the vast majority um, much younger than, say, the traditional audience for the newspaper or the New York Times. So um, I'll, I'll say one more thing which is the daily has also proved to be um, a, a distribution mechanism for other audio products from the Times. We're really excited about that. So we can, you know, the feed of the daily is a way to launch new things into the world. And we think that's going to have real value um, both to the ad business and to the subs business over time. Just to uh, maybe add even a little more context to that 4 million daily downloads number, that's more than two times what it was a year ago. So the growth is, is still exploding there as far as audience is concerned. That's Great. right. Thank it's also a highly, highly engaged audience. I think um, most people listen uh, four or five times a week, which is amazing. Great. Thank you both. Thank you. The next question comes from Kanan Venkateshwar of Barclays. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, so, Roland, on the ARPU front, when we look at next year, uh, you mentioned in your prepared remarks so that there are 1.6 million subs who are rolling off of promos. Um, and uh, this year, you've had a much higher proportion of gross additions because of the new cycle and so on and so forth. So, as you head into next year, from an ARPU perspective, that would suggest a significant pickup um, or, you know, a significant change in trajectory for ARPUs. Um, so I just want to under, make sure I read that correctly and if that, you know, uh, that assumption is correct, um, that versus the double-digit decline you've seen this year, you probably should be heading using that 1.6 million number somewhere in the mid-single-digit decline range uh, for next year. And secondly, on the cost front, um, you know, one of the big tailwinds this year has been the reduced marketing spend. And I think Meredith mentioned this in her prepared remarks that it, it's going to normalize and the environment normalizes. What's the normal level of marketing spend? Uh, maybe if you could help us understand that as a proportion of revenues or maybe some other normalization metric. Thanks. So, um, Kanan, on the R2 question, um, you know, directionally, you're, you're correct. So, uh, you know, as I described our pricing strategy, if you if you couple that with the large number of uh, new additions we've had over the last year, um, you get you understand that those folks will be transitioning to higher prices next year. I cited 1.6 million, so that's an awful lot of folks who will be stepping up in price, um, and we will also have some folks who who hit the um, they pass through the the, the tenured gate. Um, and we'll get their their two dollar increase. So when you when you combine those two things, um, we think that certainly ARPU uh, decline will slow down and potentially um, could start will, will will stabilize and could potentially start to head north. And again, that that'll be somewhat contingent on how many new subs we bring in next year. But we feel like um, definitely have a, a a good tailwind from our pricing strategy from our step up strategy. That's going to firm things up on the ARPU front um, next year. Um, as far as your cost question, um, I don't I don't have an exact number um, or metric I can give you on the marketing spend. I can say that you know we've already started to restore that. Um, I would say if you wanted to, you know, in general, 
we, we think we would invest in marketing as in our other two areas, but at a much more modest rate than, than we will in product and we will in journalism and what you're seeing in product and journalism. Um, but certainly get to levels that we've, that we've spent in the, in the recent past, the, the last two quarters, basically you should ignore as far as indicating um, our level of spend in the future. We still believe um, there's good money to be spent both in brand and direct marketing, and, and you'll see us doing just that. Got it. I guess if I could just, you know, follow up on that uh, uh, with a margin question, which is you have a better ARPU trajectory, but costs potentially step up next year uh, compared to this year. So when we look at EBITDA margins going into next year, um, I mean, should they be significantly better, worse, or, you know, roughly comparable? I mean, obviously you don't give forward guidance, but directionally, if you could help us think about, you know, where margins could be headed uh, for next year, that would be useful. Right. So, so we don't, we don't guide um, that far in advance, and we don't guide on that metric. But what, what I can say is the core part of the business, the core um, digital subscription business, we're seeing good leverage there. So we'll put some more money in there, but we'll get more money out of that than, than we're putting in. Um, but I think Meredith mentioned before, you know, the print business aside, um, you know, we still, you know, reserve the right to make discrete investment where we see the ability to to further um, accelerate our growth, and that may that may not come in the core of the business. It may come in the form of of our standalone businesses. Um, so, you know, I don't I don't want to give a a specific number there. But again, as the business matures, as the scale improves, we're seeing um, better and better leverage from the core of the business, and it's really going to really turn on how much opportunity um, we see elsewhere and what level of spending is there. But core of the business, big part of the business, we're going to see the margin expansion there. Got it. Sorry, one last question, if I could. Uh, on the balance sheet front, you're sitting on a huge amount of cash. Um, and, um, you know, given the growth this year and the improvement in ARPUs next year and so on, you seem to be getting to a cycle where you have a lot more visibility into your underlying trend lines. So, Meredith, in your seat now as CEO and Roland, um, from your perspective as well, does this uh, make you think more expansively about how to deploy that capital, either towards um, capital returns or, you know, maybe something else from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a broad answer, which is to say we see a really big opportunity. We're thinking very hard about the best way to seize that opportunity, and we're not afraid to use the balance sheet to invest where we think that's going to make sense for the long-term value of the company. Um, you saw us do that with cereal productions and, and autumn um, in, the, in the last quarter. Um, and I would say um, – you know, Roland and I have talked for some time about continued investment in journalism, continued investment in our digital product and underlying tech. And then in, in marketing, you know, to the extent that, and, and, and we first just mentioned, um, we're thinking very hard about the opportunity with our standalone products. So to the extent that it makes sense to go to the balance sheet to seize that opportunity faster or more effectively or in a way that's going to be more creative to the business, we'll do it. Got it. Thank you so much. This concludes our question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Harlan Toplitsky for any closing remarks. Thank you for joining us this morning. We look forward to talking to you again next quarter. Conference is now concluded. Thank you for attending today's presentation. You may now disconnect.